Welcome to Screen Talk, IndieWire's weekly podcast. I'm Eric Cohn, the deputy editor and chief film critic, joined as always by Ann Thompson from Thompson and Hollywood, who last week was sitting next to me in New York and just recently got back from there. So how was the rest of your trip, Ann? It was good. I went to the Whitney. I started on the top floor, worked my way down through all the great American art on display there. Um, I had a, I had a, I had, and I went to the theater. I went to see Fun Home, which was great, the Tony winner. And That's I the Alison Bechdel play. That's it in the round, and uh, really interesting staging. I, I mean, I can see why all the the director won and the girl, the younger, the middle girl, uh, the younger girl rather won, and um, and also uh, just. Um, and Cerberus, uh, the, the actor who plays the, the gay dad. Uh, it, was, it was a beautiful play. And then I also went to see An American in Paris on an entirely different sort of big <laughs> musical uh, level. That's uh, produced by Anne O'Shea, right, who, who does, um, did the uh, Hedwig and the Angry Inch as well. Wow. Well, it was a real spectacle, and they, you know, sandwiched in a lot of great Gershwin tunes on top of all the dancing uh, and the sets. It's it's a it's just one of those things that's just a visual and oral spectacle without much content to be concerned about. <laughs> Still, I'm jealous because it always seems like people from out of town see a lot more Broadway than I do, and you feel like you're missing out on a whole world of, of possibilities in that respect. I mean, it sounds like there's a lot of good stuff just from those three options, so... I'm 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 hankering to get some tickets now. You should. You should. Um I get to be a tourist. Um <laughs> and now I'm home. I'm back. I'm back home. And of course you're, you you had a, a somewhat more melancholic end to your trip. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, the the well um my my mentor back back when I was a kid in in New York City uh was Richard Corliss who was the critic of Time but he was also the editor of a film comment and brought me in there uh when I was in my 20s. Um, and uh, I got to, to play in those uh, Lincoln Center heady uh, corridors, you know, where they put on the Film Society, it puts on the, the New York Film Festival and everything. And I got to meet some of these great writers, Richard Jameson, David Thompson, um, Richard, uh, Molly Haskell and, and Andrew Sarah. So um, that this week when I was in New York, there was... Uh, Mary Corliss, uh, Richard's widow, uh, was David Thompson was in town, and he put on a celebration uh, for Richard, uh, you know, for friends, and uh, it was great. He he spoke, and Michael Barker of Sony Pictures Classics spoke, and uh, Molly Haskell, always elegant and and brilliant, was there, and, and it was just a great group, and uh, it was a sad reason to get together and, and say farewell to uh, one of our best film critics ever. I don't think he uh, he will ever be be really matched, just in terms of the range of his knowledge and the the erudition, as well as just the sheer entertainment value of his writing. Though one of the things that I always find sort of inspiring about these situations is when you do see a communal outpouring of support. You know that like their the impact of of that person's work and career continues to reverberate and have an impact, even if they're not producing new stuff. And uh, I was at the BAM Cinema Fest opening night party on Wednesday, which was at the same time, and you kind of get a similar kind of sense where it's like when you work in a world like that, it really is sort of about being part of a support system, and you're all kind of united by similar sorts of passions, and it all sort of is reflected in some ways by 
the way in which that work impacts different people. And so it sounds like that's sort of what you're talking about in terms of what this memorial was like. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I mean, you know, Dave Kerr carries on at the Museum of, of Modern Art. He was, he was another person. They, they were the auteurists, uh, if you like, the people that were uh, celebrating uh, directors and, and writers and not, and not the Pauline Kael side of, of the critical equation. Sure, it was a much bigger equation than that. So we missed you at BAM Cinemafest opening night, though, of course, you had a good excuse for not being there. But it was a good night. For those who don't know, BAM Cinemafest is this really neat uh, series festival of sorts at uh, the Brooklyn Academy of Music. It's been going on for seven years, or this is the seventh year, rather. And it's a really strong, well-programmed showcase of mostly American independent films, much of which have already premiered at other film festivals and so forth. But uh, it's a really good sort of consolidation of some of the highlights that are out there so far. And lucky for me, the opening night film was one that I hadn't seen yet. So I got to fill in a gap in my awareness of some stuff that's been out there with uh, the screening of the end of the tour, the, uh, the film about uh, David Foster Wallace starring Jason Segel as, as Wallace and, and Jesse Eisenberg as this Rolling Stone in, uh, interviewer who spoke to him a few years before Wallace's suicide. And it's it's really a fascinating movie in a lot of ways. I had heard different kinds of reactions to it, and it's a movie that I think benefits from lower expectations on, on some level, as, as I heard other people say. I would say that the challenge in this, in this uh, community, as it were, is that hype is so unpredictable. And if, some, if enough people like a certain movie, then maybe that's that's not such a great thing for a movie that has certain subtler appeals. I'm not really speaking about my own well, expectations. It's a literary movie, for one thing. There's a lot of talking going on. This yeah. is definitely a talking heads movie as opposed to a, a visual movie. But I'm not really speaking about my own experience so much as just in general what, what the anticipation from other people seemed to be, which was, it sounds like, you know, Jason Segel in a David Foster Wallace wig, kind of you know doing an imitation of sorts, but it's no, hardly. It's I think well, she did a, good, a good performance. I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, navigate this one carefully because I didn't dislike it. Uh, I won't. I'm not. I'm not over the moon about it. I think that it's incredibly well performed. It's very well paced, and uh, it's it's consistently involving. There is definitely an air of morbidity to it. I think that on some level, because... That's the subject, right? Well, so the, the, the movie begins closer to the present day with the, the immediate aftermath of David Foster Wallace's death and flashes back. So that framing device sort of turns it into a, a movie about his, his, his sort of downward spiral, although when we see him for the bulk of the movie, that's not totally the person we're seeing. And so that's an, it's an interesting inquiry into that sort of darker chapter that deepens it on some level. At the same time, I almost feel like it's a, it's a distraction from the work itself. And so I don't know if How you necessarily you need that. The work itself in, in, the, in, the, in that sense. I mean, what it's really about, I think, is it's about how someone who is of a literary bent and has written a book and everything, what being forced, you know, someone who's living a very reclusive kind of life, you know, academic life, how is he forced into the public eye and how does he deal with fame? That's right. really the issue. That, that's essentially the best part about it. of accepting that kind of laudatory, you know, you're the greatest writer of a generation, blah, 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 when he can't even internalize that, what happens to him? Sure, I think that the, 
element that so of that. So he's actually on the book tour when you when you sing. He's it. at the very end, as the title implies, and sort of exhausted and done with it. And he's sort of this lonely guy living in the Midwest, kind of peculiar, but at the same time, sort of lovable. And uh, Jesse Eisenberg's character has also published a novel, and sort of in some ways is very envious. And so there's this subtext, Definitely. and so there's in a lot of alpha going on. So I guess that the the centrality of, of the plot in that sense is much more interesting than the specter of his suicide. And so I'm just playing devil, devil's advocate here for a minute because I think on some level the movie is about why David Foster Wallace would not like this movie to be out there because on some level it dwells more on the darker elements of, of his sort of his personal life than it does on his literary talent. And that's something that I think is maybe sort of off-putting because the parts where you do see him really talk about his work or his view of society are really exciting. And it's been compared at times to um, My Dinner with Andre. I think that comparison is fairly accurate. I mean, there's a little bit more plot in some ways. It's a talking but, heads movie. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's a literary talking heads movie. So going in, that has to be the... I do think the two performances are superb, um, and I, I actually think it was a very high level of difficulty. So um, Well, and yeah. Sago especially is, a, I think, really impressive because it's the first real performance that doesn't look like any of his other performances. And so I think this is the best performance he's ever given, and I think he dug into it and surprised me in terms well, of... Well, he, he buries it. I mean, it too. takes a few minutes to realize that he's doing this and then he kind of slips into the role and it does become increasingly involving to see how somebody like this you know a writer who's dealing with hubris and all these different kinds of elements is sort of coping with the possibility of being more successful than he anticipated after so many different dark times so it's it's very involving it's also it's got a certain they also kind of have fun they're also having fun with women and uh, drinking a lot and competing with each other. So the Jesse Eisenberg character is definitely a, a vehicle for getting all of this out there. He's, He's good. good job He's good. I mean, I, I'm never really totally put off with him, although, I mean, compared to what Sago's doing, it's, it's a much more traditional vein for him. So it's harder to, to get quite it's as enthusiastic. Yeah. So this opens up an interesting question about what's going to happen with this movie. I don't think reactions were were through the moon when it premiered at Sundance, though it's at Sundance it did I mean, it, it did fine, right? It did fine. I think a lot of people like you didn't go go to see it, so so it's. It was an easy one to kind of lose in the shuffle, and this brings it back sort of in the ramp up to its release later this year. And I wouldn't be surprised if A24 is thinking about you know what sort of awards they're considerations they're gonna see where it goes and what it gets and uh and how i i suspect um if anything it's perform it's the performance of jason siegel that would be the the uh the real uh, uh possibility but as usually the actor race is more heated and more uh, competitive and but so it's an interesting it, question is this a lead if it performance do well if it just gets a few yeah if the reviews are mixed you know that, but this that, is an interesting question is this a lead performance or a supporting one I would have to say this Eisenberg is the supporting performance and Siegel is the lead and last year with Foxcatcher we had this whole conversation about you know should Steve Carell be submitted as lead actor for Foxcatcher it turned out that wasn't a bad idea because he did get nominated Though, who knows, if he had been supporting, if yeah. he had been supporting, maybe he would have won, though. I mean, it's, it's really hard to say. 
But with this one, if you were to submit Siegel as supporting in a movie where you could make the case that it's more about this other writer who kind of discovers David Foster Wallace in a way. Well, if if they submitted him, wouldn't that give him a better shot? I don't see how they could. I mean, it's about him. It's about him, but through the lens of this other writer. I mean, it's framed it's a, from the a, writer's it's a perspective. Liter- I mean, it's a two-hander. I mean, if you really wanted to argue, it was it, they could you could argue that the two of them should be lead, but they'll never do that either. Yeah, that would be tough. I mean, Eisenberg's been nominated before, but this is not the Social Network. It's not that kind of no, dynamic it's not role. The same thing. Not so, I guess I guess it also kind of depends. How does the movie continue to play around once it opens, and how do people continue to talk about Segel? I mean, he's been in the Oscars before with the, the Muppet movie, so it's not entirely new to, to this kind of uh, treatment. It's more of a surprise. Right? I would say that this is more of a, of a, a sort of a breakthrough uh, dramatic performance, although there's plenty of comedy in it, too, uh, uh, and wit. But um, I think actors are going to appreciate it. That's, that's the main thing. Yeah, absolutely. It is a really well-acted film. Though I would say it is a well-directed film by James Ponsel, who did The Spectacular Now, and he's an interesting filmmaker who continues to work in a very... Smart and brainy filmmaker. Yeah, sort of like character-driven stories. I think he's really still just at an earlier stage in terms of what he could do with his time. But the screenplay, which is uh, by Donald Margolis and based on David Lipsky's book, is also something that's probably worth... Award season, yeah. I mean, it's something that could get some traction in that respect. So I think it'll be an interesting one for us to continue to talk about, really depending on how the field shakes down, but it might be one of those kind of smaller movies that's fun and and worth championing as things get more and more heated. So I guess we can put a pin in it for now, but one of the things that I find really fascinating at this juncture is that even as we have things like that to anticipate, there's so much stuff opening in theaters right now. And this weekend in particular, we've been talking about this for a while, is an incredibly strong weekend for opening movies, starting with one... I would like to challenge everyone to tell me when there was a weekend where the Rotten Tomatoes scores were so incredible. I'm looking at one, two, three, four five, six, seven movies that are over 80% on the uh, Rotten Tomatoes meter. More. There's eight. Of there's, course, the critic wire averages may be different, nine. but... There's, there's like nine of them that are over 80. And I would assume on critic wire we have maybe a little bit more of a sophisticated sort of breakdown, but I'm not going to dig too deep into that right now just because I know Rotten Tomatoes is a bigger network. And one of the things that's worth pointing out in that respect is that the tomato meter this week is actually reflecting a whole bunch of movies that we've already been cognizant of for a while and like, and they just all happen to be opening right now. And and a lot of them are either things we've already seen at, at festivals or things that played at festivals a while ago. And like they're all or infinitely polar bear or the overnight. All of which are Sundance premieres. And, and then one that's at the top of the list of, of at ninety eight percent is Inside Out, his right. favorite animated film, which you eventually raved about. I saw. I did. I did. Well, I've been raving about it since Cam, but put it into a, to a formal review context finally this week. It is an absolute return to form for Pixar. It's also a movie that I can't wait to see more and more people kind of talk about and grapple with when when the you know psychology today has to do some big piece on whether or not. Yeah, right. I mean, it's just 
because far off are they? they I, I just think it changes the way you see the world. That's my bottom line, and it's just an amazing, amazing movie that they postponed and they took their, you know, they took the time they needed to make it really good, which is the the genius of the Pixar system. Yes, but the genius of the Pixar system hasn't exactly been clicking the last few years. No, so they've been doing sequels and things. But right. That, it's not like they've been falling on their face. We can let Cars go. You know, that's all right. Well, Cars go and some of the others, too. I mean, I know you liked Brave. I wasn't over the moon about it. Monsters University was kind of forgettable. As I recall, Brave won the Oscar. Oh, yeah, so then it must have been a masterpiece, right? <laughs> uh, award season debate, my favorite time of the year. Oh, that must be it. Yeah, we're hitting all, all, the, all the sort of brownie points here. <laughs> I, I also, I'm really curious to see how the movie does this weekend. I mean, people have been talking nonstop about how successful Jurassic World was over It'll the weekend. It'll be the number one, unfortunately. It's but. frustrating. Last weekend, or last week when we were talking about it, I hadn't seen it yet. I really didn't care that much for Jurassic World. I've seen a lot worse when it comes to movies on this scale. But the fact that it made more money in its opening weekend than Mad Max made in its 32 or odd days of release is just so infuriating to people it's who care about movies. It's very nice to see that on the critic world chart, critic wire chart that you, the poll you did, Mad Max still came in number one among yep. our erudite, smart, and brainy readers. That's right. That's right. And critics, critics, smart people, <laughs> critics agree as well. So everybody who comes up to me because I've been raving about Mad Max and I say, go see it. You have to see it. You're crazy if you don't see it, blah, blah, blah. And they come back and they don't like it. I like want to go, you're done. Yeah. I, fortunately, I think those people are for the most part in a minority, though a lot of people like Jurassic World more than I would expect them to. It's sort of deal with Jurassic World. I, I just had a great time, you know, and, and I, 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 I was prepared uh, to be disappointed. I was prepared to be annoyed by uh, Bryce Dallas Howard, you know, running around in high heels and so forth. And I don't know how to explain it, but I just went with the rules of the genre, you know? I just went with it, I flowed with it, and I enjoyed myself. Is it God's gift? No. But that is a, a, the definition of a well-made, well-constructed, well-executed popcorn summer movie, and but, the numbers uh, prevail in that regard. But here's the problem I have with that mentality is that I... I want even movies made on that scale for that sensibility to have some element of, of new of newness, of innovation, of the challenge. That's why Mad no, Max is so great. There. That's not there. This is about giving people what they want. This right. is about having that giant dinosaur fish come soaring out of the water and grab Jaws the shark as if it were a minnow. I would trade the sandstorm, the dust storm in Mad Max for that 20 I'm times over. I'm compare this to Mad Max. Mad Max is head and shoulders above it. It's an entirely different But it still has that kind of bottom line entertainment value alongside he wasn't thinking the, about he wasn't thinking so much about how to give people what they want but it does no, that it George does Miller that doesn't do that and it, that's one of the reasons why that's a great movie it does but it does that anyway because that's sort of a simpler desire that's embedded in the more complex things about that movie that's all i, I want i'm saying is the reason why i get frustrated when a movie that just gives people what they want does so well is because i i think that movies should be made to challenge people 
even if they don't expect to be challenged. And well, in a that's week, what you think you are never going to get what you want from Hollywood. And and, and I I certainly have made. I've I've made peace with that and and continue to assume that I'm fighting the good fight. But you, you, you look, know, you could ask them to do it, but it's Inside Out <laughs> and Mad Max is the whole point I've been making ever since I saw these two movies. This is an unusual and rare, <laughs> fabulous occurrence. Well, Inside Out does not occur every day. Also, is the exception to the rule. Hollywood does not play. Animation gets away with stuff. Originality that the big studios cannot even do. It doesn't have to be an exception to the rule. It can it can be the rule if we keep talking about it because the fact of the matter is are you they were able to us? Believe I, me. I don't know if they're not. I don't know if they're listening to us. They might be. We probably have a few listeners, a couple of executives tuning in. I wouldn't be surprised. You got your followers. I I think that Either the studios pay attention or sometimes they accidentally allow something good to happen. But either way, it's worth talking about it when it does because we have to amplify those kinds of movies in the hopes that more people will want to see them. I also want to add to that that on a weekend when there are at least six movies opening that we like, that I can say I've seen all six movies opening this week. Except for Inside, Inside Out. Out. And, and they're all really good. And that is the ideal contrast to the idea of one big movie kind of dominating and just being the movie that people are aware of at any given moment in time. I mean, Dope, not my favorite movie of the year. It's it's strong. It's a lot of fun. It's, it's certainly one of the better African-American movies being released in this country this year. Um, Infinitely Polar Bear is a, has a great Mark Ruffalo performance at the center of it as a bipolar character. Even Manglehorn this like really quirky David Gordon Green movie that doesn't really have a plot in which Al Pacino plays a locksmith. Has a, that it's one like, came in at thirty eight percent on Rotten Tomatoes, but, but it's it's much more interesting than the tomato meter would lead you to believe. It's certainly Pacino's most fascinating performance in a long time, and it's and it's got this element of magical realism to it that I really liked. Um, and then of course we have a movie that we've both seen, Eden, which is uh, about the sort of history of the French. Uh, techno electronic scene covers about twenty years worth of events, and um, the prism of, of of two characters who who are inside that world. Right, so it's, it's really set in the world, and really, it's not like a history lesson. No, but it's it's the the, the Daft Punk era, but through the lens of somebody in France, in France, who who was uh, basically. Not as successful as Daft Punk, but just as much kind of in the scene. Influential. And it's based on, on, on director Mia Hansen-Love's brother, Sven Hansen-Love's experiences. He is a DJ, and as the movie's been playing at festivals, he has been uh, DJing and so forth. And so there's a real personal element to it. And it doesn't work for everybody that I've talked to. Some people don't really get the sort of that quieter... Uh, some people don't get the kind of quieter rhythms to it, I would it's say. It's not a but... quiet movie because you do have this sort of deafening milieu and soundtrack. And, and unfortunately, the lead character, the DJ that we're following through his success, is also um, basically going down the trajectory we're all too familiar with, with drugs and escapism and, and losing his way uh, in that world. So uh, that becomes a little familiar. I would say that even though the the soundtrack certainly isn't quiet, but the narrative is sort of quiet in some ways because it's so unassuming. And Mia Hansen-Love 
She's a really interesting filmmaker. Her other titles include Goodbye, First Love. Um, she's been making movies for a number of years that have this sort of uh, slow burn element where it's much more about kind of the internal experiences of the characters. And I think Eden is sort of like the paragon of that in a lot of ways. And uh, I hope that people go see it. It's not the sort of thing I would recommend to somebody who's looking for a really obvious crowd pleaser, but if you like this kind of music or just sort of the, the story setting itself is appealing, then I think you'll find a lot to dig through just because it's so textured. And I really hope it does do well because it's also the first release of a company we've been speculating about for a long time, Broad Green Pictures, and they've got a whole bunch of stuff lined up to come out this year and a lot of movies that I like that they've been picking up. So I'm super curious to see how that's going to go for them. What do you think, Anne? Well, it's one of those situations where, um, you know, if you've been following the history of independent independent distribution startups, you know, they, they're they very hard to do. They're very, very expensive. Uh, these guys are from hedge funds, and they have money, da Daniel and Gabriel Hammond, and they're very smart. Um, we talk to them at Cannes, you and I, and um, and they're very idealistic. Um, they frown upon the way that uh, people misbehave in Hollywood. Have people get rewarded for behaving badly, and and they are trying to build a different kind of culture. And yes, they have taste, and yes, they're picking up things, but. Um, I don't know. Uh, we're we're going to see. I mean, they they have a basically they have a specialty division, and they also have picked up, you know, the two uh, Terrence Malick movies coming up, Knights Knight of Cups among them, the one that debuted in in Berlin, and and they have um, Ninety Nine Homes, which they picked up competitively out of out of Toronto. Um, it's just a question of, uh, you know, can they in a diff, in an already challenging environment, an increasingly competitive one where it costs more money to, to pick up things, and they are financing movies uh, too, uh, it's just going to be, um, they're going to have to do everything right. And, and so everybody's eyes are on them. I think they're being, you know, people are rooting for them to succeed, but uh, it's going to be, they're, they're you know, staffing up. They've got like 65 people working for them now. So they're spending real money to launch this company. And which is incredibly ambitious when you look at what the slate is. I mean, not just something like Eden, which as we've discussed is not the easiest sell, even though it's a very good movie, but there's a little romance they're putting out, a long distance movie called uh, 10,000 Kilometers that's basically two people having a conversation over Skype for like 90 minutes. I mean, it's really well acted and, and, and powerful. But it's Spanish. It's right? in Spanish. I mean, and this is a, the other movie is French language. They have two Terrence Malick movies. I mean, there's, there's so many different things about the, these titles that they're picking up that are not easy sells. And one part and of me is there like... there was The Green Room, which was in Cannes, which, which they, did, they may be trying to find another distributor for, a very violent film, Jeremy Sonier's film. Right. That one seems to be now on the market, though they did produce it, and the company with that kind of resources at their disposal should be probably working in production as well. So it's another avenue, and there's a lot of question marks there, but with Eden coming out, I think that's a, a pretty unique way to test the viability of this company to, to do what one hopes they can do. So we'll be paying pretty close attention to how it does this weekend and, and how those other movies do 
in the in the coming weeks, especially as um, now that they've finally announced release dates for a lot of those titles, and there's a lot more to anticipate. In the, in and the inevitably, years. they're basically saying that they're going to go into doing wide release movies as well. You know, you, you're they're not. They, I think they figured out that they're not going to live or die on 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 specialty product. Right, right. Well, I mean, it's every every distributor struggles in that in that respect to figure out exactly what their sort of, you know, the 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 core of their business is, and, and whether or not they're they're in it to to win it in the, in the most traditional sense, or they're in it for passion and, and trying to to do cool stuff. And I mean, we were talking about A twenty four earlier. That's another company with a good amount of money behind it that sometimes does things really successfully, and sometimes. You just want to root for them because they're putting some good movies out there. So. Like Amy, which which I like a lot. Um, right. But the but the, the the Amy Winehouse documentary. But bottom line, Eric, you know, uh, I guess what's going on with Broad Green is people are going to see, you know, at a certain point, how much money are they willing to spend uh, before they see anything come back, and and will there be anything coming back? And and that's that and, and A twenty four is in the same situation. No matter how much good taste is involved in picking up the cool movies, uh, they finally have to make money. Makes you wonder how people will talk about these companies in decades to come, whether or not they're gonna have sort of a bigger historical role to play, which brings up some of the uh, obituaries that we saw coming out this week, one of which for uh, Kurt Kerkorian was basically all about the guy who destroyed MGM. And you did a piece on that. So can you tell us a little bit more about why that name is, is important to uh, film history? Well, um, you know, um, another person uh, who died uh, recently was Jack Rollins, uh, who had a role. Uh, not only was he um, representing... Um, uh, David Letterman and actually lived to see that whole arc uh, got come to its conclusion as, as he said goodbye uh, on, on late night television. But um, he also worked with Woody Allen. And when I was a kid in New York, before I was rescued by Richard Corliss and taken to Film Comet, I worked at United Artists, 729 7th Avenue in the publicity bullpen. And uh, we released um, Woody Allen's Annie Hall and Manhattan and any number of wonderful films. And so over the course of, of, of you know, I got to know Jack Rollins and Woody, and Woody Allen and his people. And, and over the course of, of the decades, I've watched what happened to MGM and UA uh, and, and how this guy, Kirk Kerkorian, you know, the original uh, outside investor as a uh, rapacious exploiter of assets. Uh, he was a real estate mogul, uh, an airline mogul, and he just, you know, bought and sold and bought and sold and, uh, you know, to Ted Turner and then back again, various different aspects. The library went here, the logo went there, the, the, you know, he bought, he, he took the logo and made, you know, the MGM Grand in Las Vegas. So he made a fortune. He made a fortune. He made a fortune in Las Vegas. But what was a mighty uh, company, MGM and United Artists, were uh, effectively uh, stripped and uh, made to be former shadows, shadows of their former selves, slivers of their former selves. And it was a very sad thing uh, to witness. Is there any hope for this company's brand in the present day i mean especially now that this person's legacy has, has faded and the well, library still um, exists mgm I mean. became 
purchased by a consortium of companies, MGM and UA being linked still. Um, you know, there was a period where UA was, Bingham Ray was running a UA as a sort of subsidiary label. There was a period where they, they had Tom Cruise running UA. I mean, these are ludicrous, you know, it was, it was terrible. <laughs> um, but uh, basically, MGM has some great brand names, including James Bond, and UA, UA is part of that, and and also uh, uh, I think they have a piece of, of the Hobbit, I, I I believe, and and the, the so they're they're still exploiting that. Um, you know, in fact, they they're going to be there's there's a, there is a, an MGM production entity that uh, owns certain properties that is that is still uh, you know making you know producing with partners. Uh, these movies are not a distribution company, and UA is 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 pretty much moribund at this point. Um, can they can they build it into something more? Perhaps we'll see how well they manage those assets this time around. So that's an interesting way to leave things off. There's a lot of different stuff to anticipate about the next coming months, especially with award season ramping up. But next week, I guess. If we want, we can dig into Ted too. I feel like there will so be a I'm lot of other things. <laughs> I am not going. You know me. My my credo is: do not go to the movies that look that mo that may, that will be a huge hit. By the way, it's just not appealing to my demo. I feel like we should do a Twitter a Twitter survey. Should Anne go see Ted too? <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a lot of listeners out there who would who would love to know what you think about that movie. So till then, Anne. Strange concert. I don't want to tell you now.